Brendan Solvig. What's up? Welcome to the hey. podcast. What's going on, man? Good to be on. Living the dream. Ooh, living the dream. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, um, so how you doing in this? Uh, well, everybody, welcome to the podcast. My name is Brian Neitch, and I have with me a special guest all the way from the good old West Coast, home of um, Bernie. No, wait, no, I'm just kidding. Brandon, Starbucks, yeah, Starbucks, Seattle Mariners. Yeah, all Microsoft. the all the all the tech companies. Brendan Solvig, what's yeah. up, dude? Not a whole lot, man. How you been? How, I, how's the quarantine treating so you? So good. I'm 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 totally fine. Yeah, me too. I was fine. I was like, you know, I've um. What's real funny is I actually realized the other day I live a quarantine life because <laughs> you know I I work from the house. So like I'm constantly like uh, you know staying here and going out once in a while, sure. And so it's like I'm man. I am. Uh, I was ready for this ten years ago. Yeah, I started working from home about ten years Dude, ago. Dude, I uh, yeah. My life aside from the gym hasn't changed too much. I've been lifting at my house. I kind of created my own garage gym, and. Uh, it's been it's been actually a blessing, dude. I've been able to slow down. I've been able to yeah get more sleep, spend more time with my family, uh, which is a big deal, bro. I, so there's a lot of blessing in this. It's it's kind of scary, of course. Yeah, but uh, you know I'm also seeing the positives in it. So I've been mentally I've been doing really well. Uh, it hasn't really affected my job too much. We moved online to teaching because I teach high school. And middle school, and uh, that's been that's been fun for me. I know the kids have been struggling with it a little bit because they've never done online school, so they're they're learning how to manage their time. They're not used to that, so. But it's been it's been fun, man. I've been enjoying the the small blessings out of this, but I'm also ready for the quarantine to end and go to my favorite restaurants and eat there and all that I, stuff. Dude, I know, so. I know. It's it, yeah. my with my one of my favorite things is my father in law and I used to um Jeff, shout out to Jeff, Schmidt. He we used to um we used to go like meet up at a Starbucks once or twice a week and just like talk about like you know the news of the day and the what we're studying and um our favorite uh, conspiracy theory of the hour you know all that stuff and that's totally like out the window he, you know he came over about a week ago and we were. Did he or two weeks ago? And he, we were like, he's like, oh, let's not touch each other, social distancing. So it's a, <laughs> it's a whole, it's a totally different world. So hopefully get back to normality. I don't know if we will. Yeah, though. I, I think it's going to happen pretty soon. Um, the way the projections have been going, it looks like uh, we could be returning back to somewhat normal in May. I'm sure we'll still have to do the social distancing, but I think things are going to start opening up in May, which that's exciting. Yeah. That, I mean, that would be. Can you believe it's already April 10th of 2020? I well, know. It's, it's Good Friday, dude. It's Good Friday, bro. I can't believe it. I know. Uh, happy Good Friday. I know. We, it is finished. It is. That's a great. You know, that's a. That's one of the topics I wanted to talk about a little bit. I don't know how much time you have today, but I got about thirty minutes, man. But uh, yeah, dude, I've been I've been thinking about that a lot today, and uh, 
been been like thinking about like the procession of Christ. So, you know what's crazy is uh, I talked about this with one of, one of my buddies Jack, and he, we we and I'm a big Roman history guy, and uh, the Passion, Jesus Passion, as a it's it's basically how it's written in the Gospels is like a Roman triumph, especially in Mark's Gospel. Right. Yeah. Because Mark's Gospel is about him being the king, really focused on Jesus the King. But uh, it 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 the if you look at his passion, like how he was, um, it basically it was a parade, a triumph was parade that functioned to honor and celebrate a victorious general for military success. Mm-hmm. And if you look at it and you compare it to the triumph, um, it's it's really identical um, in a lot of ways. So like for example, like you had the Praetorian in Mark fifteen sixteen. Or the uh, the person was sent to the Roman military headquarters, but also word described the personal bodyguard of the emperor. Um, so they they were present, a cohort of Roman soldiers. Same passage, they're numbering sixteen uh, soldiers. They would be part of the triumph, so they were participating in Jesus' humiliation. Yeah. And he's adorned in a purple garment, just like a Roman triumphant would, mocked with praise. Uh, he Simon of Cyrene in the triumph, a bull that was to be sacrificed was led in procession next to the bull was walked a Roman official. Yeah. Double yeah. Act. That... Um, yeah, dude, it, it's, it's kind of crazy um, that there would be at the, at the end of the triumph, there'd be two people right to left to Jesus or to the triumpher. And there was at Jesus when he was crucified, right, there was right. thieves at the cross. And then there's the confession where, they would proclaim the uh, the guy in the triumph as as a victor, and you could see the centurion recognize the triumph because he proclaims Jesus as Lord, as as he says Yeshua Kurios, he's the he's Lord, mm-hmm. which is a remarkable statement if you understand like the centurion and Roman society for for a Roman to make when a man is at the cross dying at seemingly humiliating death. He recognizes this and he says he he's got to be the, the right, emperor. Right. Yeah. This he's the must one be. True emperor. Yeah. That's pretty fascinating. It's you know it's fascinating. You know a lot of. I don't like how, um, you know I don't I don't know a lot of history about how we have, we have taught, um, Christianity and the process. You know the whole process uh, and the walk through of the passion. You know that the whole the week the holy week the. Um, the, the the events leading up to and the the resurrect and the you know the death burial and resurrection to the Americans to the uh, Western people and we don't really understand like like uh, most people most Christians in the West they don't understand um, you know they don't understand covenant they really don't understand the process of what was happening you know the things that needed to happen and what was actually happening for him to fulfill so many items and then the victorious ending. Like I know it's it, it for us, for people who have studied it and, and look at it and, and kind of see different, different things uh, we can say, and we can celebrate it in a different way. We're like, wow, you know, like look what, look what actually happened. It's not just that, Oh, he died and rose again. I mean, he did, he did, he fulfilled so many awesome things that God set forth for him to fulfill. Not only that, he actually, created this you know he had this older culture that he was becoming royalty as well in 
for um, for the Gentile nation to see. And so, you know, in the, in the Western world, I don't I, I I'm tr- I hope that we can change that, you know, because we just kind of preach this uh, seeker friendly. A lot of times we preach this see- seeker friendly church message, you know, which the gospel is prosper prosperous. And it is the idea of that, um, you know, you, you have overcome. You can get out of the hole and you can you can be victorious in every situation, et cetera, et cetera. But we kind of fluff it up, and it's a it's a it's a down dirty gospel, and it's a it's a victorious gospel in so many different ways. But we kind of fluff it and for Sunday mornings, for you know, come to my church and give a couple bucks, and you know, serve, make sure you serve. If you don't serve, then you're not a Christian. And I don't like that. That's why one thing about the the, the Holy Week, I love. We can start talking about um, you know what happened with Jesus and what what he actually fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's true, man. I I have an issue with it too. And I think we miss a lot in the gospels when we reduce it to this, basically this watered down, uh, seeker friendly. That's a good way of describing it. Uh, we commodify Christianity. I, I, I've been, I dig this book that I've read a few years back. I've probably read it five times. It's Brian Zahn, and it's called Beauty That Saves the World. And he says we've reduced Christianity to the smiley face where it's all about feeling good, looking good, and like that's the symbol of Christianity. It's not the cross. And he says, I don't think I've understated the problem. And I was like, yeah, I don't think you have either. Whereas it, it turns into this cheap thing where it's not beautiful. It's just this it's it's just like everything else we've made in our culture. This kind of this product. Like yeah. here's this product and this is how it can better your life. Whereas the cross isn't something that betters your life, it's something that transforms your life and makes it better for sure. But it at first there has to be transformation and resurrection yeah. within the soul. And I think a lot of times we we typically look for application, and we don't understand that through theology and through understanding the scriptures, we not only get understanding, but through understanding, we get application in a much deeper way. Uh, yeah, yeah. It will your faith. Where your faith will be able to sustain the worst of times, much like these times. Man, that's that is a hundred percent true. But it's it's stuff that I mean, it's funny you bring that up. It's stuff I've been really thinking about. I think. Ironically enough, how God's using the coronavirus, it may be the best thing ever for Christianity in the church <laughs> in, the, in the United States because it's forced them to go small groups. It's forced them to I actually know. disciple. And I love that. You, I love it too. I think I think it's one of the best things that's ever happened because it's forced people to actually interact, whereas the church, you don't interact. You hear the message. You bolt. It's 45 minutes long. The pastor there spends the first – and I've, I've literally have heard pastors do this. I'm so glad you're here, and I don't want to waste your time. I know you're busy, and I want to – like, I'm not busy, dude. Like, I came here to hear the word of God Bingo. and to be edified. I, I got nothing else better to do, literally. Well, that – you know, that's the thing. That is the – you know, the, there's so much in that in that, in that that little statement you made all – you know, the, about the whole the whole application of the, the quote, the church. You know, because it's the church is us, number one. Right. And when it becomes a building and when it becomes, uh, you know, my lights have to 
uh, be turned on and if I'm not, you know, the, the crowd's not given. And I understand all that, and that's important, and I believe that's fine. That's exactly how, you know, God want, God's fine with that, I'm sure. But if when it becomes Jesus as second, right, and the church building and the process is first, man, it hurts the heart of God. You know, I, I, it really hurts the, the, the Holy Spirit and, and, him, and him able to really work the way he wants. Because then, you know, the pastor becomes, or whoever's leading, generally on on stage from the pulpit becomes the voice um and the um uh, the orator and you know the 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 guy on the um on the pedestal and of course that's not at all what the message is the message is you lift Jesus up and he draws all men unto him you know mm-hmm. and it becomes he becomes second what happens then he wants to spit you out right he says it was it the book of revelation Chapter three says, "Don't um, you've forgotten your first love? You've forgotten what it like, what it's like to fall in love, and make Jesus number one all the time." You know, and I'm sure that many Christians um, go through these this process, but you get born again, and man, you, uh, most of the time you have this fire for for the Lord. You want to get into the Word of God. You want to tell people, you know what? He is real. He's done something to me. He's changed me. And I just want more of it. And I want to talk to you about it. I want to talk to him about it. I want to get around other people who talk about it. And yeah. as they start, as they go to church and they put their Bible down and they pick up the pamphlet, no, nothing against pamphlets, pamphlets, but you pick that little paper up, you write down the answers with a pen on the little line. It says, you know, when did Jesus was raised from the dead? You're like, you know, Saturday night, Sunday morning or whatever you say. That's all you do. That's all you study. That's all you think about. And you forget the whole process of what got you excited, going to him, yeah. going to him, you know. And, and so that's I'm glad about. I'm I'm kind of I'm very glad about this. Uh, you, you know, people. I'm not glad about the, the coronavirus and of course the uh, quarantine and government control. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I, but you know I, I think, I'm glad about this whole small group setting, like you're saying. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a bad thing that God is ultimately using for good, and. Yeah, I think that that's so key to look at it through that lens. It's like I, I did a, my podcast, Theosis Radio, where I did a show, solo show on was the coronavirus. Is it biblical to say coronavirus was a judgment sent from God? And I said, well, you can't use the Bible to show that. There's there's a lot of people that will point to for certain verses like, oh, this is the coronavirus and we're in the end times. And it's like judgment to wicked sinners. And it's like, well – no, God didn't cause the coronavirus, but he is using this coronavirus to fulfill ultimately his purposes and his will. And I think of like Genesis 50 verse 21. I think of Romans 8, 28 through 29, where it says you've all intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And I yeah. think a lot of good is coming from this. Um, strangely enough, dude, I saw a quote from Hollywood Hulk Hogan, dude, of all people who says basically the coronavirus, what is it? It's it's shown it's taken away the things that we've ultimately worship and it's given us perspective on what is ultimately most important. Oh, yeah. And I can't I can't agree with that more. I was like, dude, I couldn't have said that any better. What I've been trying to articulate for the last few months is exactly what this guy who, you know, is not the most moral person ever, but he said some real stuff that I think perfectly articulates the season of life that we're all in 
and I think this is ultimately going to be used for good. That's, that's I don't a good think, point. I don't think the enemy or the powers to be of this world is ultimately going to prevail in their schemes because you know there's a lot of those schemes going on. Yep. And I think God will get the victory. He ultimately does. And so it's, Amen. it's cool. It's cool to see, man. I Absolutely. Mean, in a lot of ways, like I'm definitely worried. I'm definitely worried about my students. I definitely, uh, sure, you know, yeah. I'm concerned about them. I'm concerned about people's mental well-being. Most importantly, not so much like the disease killing a lot of people. Right. Although there is that. There is a lot of people that who are, who are succumbing to the disease. Not as many as we we thought. Thank God. No, it's about ten thousand or so. Yeah, I think so. I I haven't checked the numbers yet, but. Uh, I, I, there's this website hey. I follow. It's um, a real. Let me look. Let me look at it. It's real, real, uh, real clear. Poly, real clear news or something. They have a list, an ongoing list. That's like, um, let me see, how many natural health? That's what it is. Natural health news or something. It's a uh, hundred thousand total dead, one point seven a million infected, with the U S. Mm-hmm. with eighteen thousand seven hundred deaths. I mean that, and that's of course what they're reporting. I mean, but I'm with you. I, I think that this is definitely not a judgment from God. You know, sin is a sin, and death is a judgment from sin. And you know that that's that's definitely what's in the world. We have sin in the world, and because of that, things happen. Bad things happen. You know that the the story. Bad things happen to good people, and that around the world, and where people who don't deserve it, or whatever you want to say. Of course, the, the bad things happen. And this, yeah. you know, but so the Spanish, you know, I mean, Spanish flu happened. That was what, 1917. And then uh, yeah. the, the swine flu happened. And there are things. What it, um, did you hear that quote uh, from Bill? I mean, not Bill Clinton, Bill Gates. He's been saying for the last few years, I'm not scared about nuclear war. This is almost verbatim. I'm not scared about, you know, famine or break uh, some type of problem with our financial uh organizations i'm scared that we will have a microbe problem or the flu pandemic will come out and spread across the world and uh i mean that's Mm. that's uh that's really the only thing sickness you know the book of revelation the end times you know people kind of flee from that topic but those those things are in there and um but thank god we have a covenant you know, we yeah. have something to stand on and for protection, at least something we, we have. We have uh, a lot of people don't always believe in healing, etc. That's fine. They don't have to. But at least you can go out fighting as a Christian. You know, it's it's one thing to crawl up and and, um, and die and, and be afraid. But at least you have something to stand on that's firm and yeah. and uh, go forward. Huh. So speaking of Holy Week, let me ask you this. Sure. There's of course the, there's probably a debate. I haven't um, heard it. It's like a huge debate because it's only once a year. But when do you believe, according to our calendar, according to our days, right? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Let me backtrack real quick. In the Old Testament, of course, uh, the days were six p.m. Um, to six a.m. Right, to 6 p.m., excuse me. 24-hour day was 6 p.m. to 6 p.m., right? We don't really consider that. We can, In the United States, we say 12 midnight to 12 midnight. That's the day for us. 
So that being said, the, Jesus was in the grave three days and three nights. He, wrote, he, he died on X and rose on X, according to our days, you know, and, and according to uh, ver- verses, according to what is the Hebrew uh, day. Do you know, when do you think he, he rose from the dead or, or let's back. When do you think he was crucified? What day, like a Wednesday or uh, Friday? Dude, I don't really have an opinion on that. Yeah. Um, I just know what happened. Nah. Yeah. That's good. Hey, that's nothing yeah, wrong with that. I, I think, I think, I think a lot of times people will bring this up to show like it, because we don't know the exact day we can't pinpoint. Therefore it's historical validity. Um, all we have is the New Testament, which I would say the New Testament is pretty dang good considering yeah. the Gospels. Because we look at the New Testament as the books were written together or they're co- somehow compiled together at the same time. Yeah. And they're written by different time periods within the life of the eyewitnesses by different author perspectives. That's why I like Mark, Matthew, Luke, and even John, even though John's not synact- synoptic to Mark, Matthew, Luke, they're not the same. Um they have differences in the story because they were written by different people at different times mm-hmm. and they were listening to different eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts. And they were focusing on certain aspects of the story of Christ right. to highlight important themes and to underline the messages. Now, what I would say too, outside of the new Testament, you have, you have places like uh, Thallus who wrote 52 AD. So Jesus the histor- historians would say that he would die, you know, in 33 AD. In 33 AD is sure when he died. Um, and Thallus wrote 52 AD, so that's only like a few years after Jesus died. And Thallus reported an eclipse happening throughout the world that darkened the world. And that, yeah, what what historians theorize is that that was the same eclipse that happened when Jesus was crucified. There was some sort of event that actually blocked out the sun, which was recorded in the gospel accounts in Matthew. And so I don't know exactly the exact date. It could be Easter. It could be not. Um, it could have been more so in the wintertime. Um, but uh, I would, Interesting. I, would I, I don't know. It probably would be more in line with the Jewish calendar, the actual Jewish calendar. Sure. Passover. Yeah. And so more than likely – it's it's based on the Jewish calendar. Well, I so, well think about it. I to, I hundred percent believe that God does not he does not fluff the uh, the dates or the or the timeline. Right? I, I he was the Passover for Israel. Right? He was the Lamb on the door. A hundred percent, Jesus. So I think when I do think he is the Passover Lamb. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's what the Scripture says. He's the Passover. He is the Lamb of God. And it goes right along with the the Passover feast, right? So, yeah, I, I think uh, the timeline is when, of course, is Passover. Um, and, you know, it's even if it was, wasn't, was right, and it was another day. I, but I do believe that God 100% follows his feasts in, in, in the way he set them up. You know, events happen on, on certain things. Like Jesus was born on a feast day and, and, and so on. So there are so many, so many amazing um correlations that, that you have with the old the old testament the, the old covenant and how god laid it out and then jesus you know have you ever read the uh the case for christ lee strobel yeah dude that's uh what got me yeah kind of going into my own study i read that in college a friend of mine gave that to me when i went to fca 
kind of stumbled upon it. Yeah. And uh, went on my own little case for Christ journey because I was like, I wonder if any of this stuff is actually true. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not gonna take this guy, this Lee Strobel guy's word for it, <laughs> but uh, I wanted to look into the other world's religions and study it for myself. And uh, any case, well, he won you over. Praise God. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's good. That's real good. I, uh, I, there's so much evidence, you know, especially with the, the historic uh, events that happen and, and eyewitnesses accounts that are written down. And it's amazing. You know, it's interesting. There's a I, I, few times I talk to people about this. Um, the idea that, that there, not only is there so much evidence, but the only thing and the only person who has changed history and touched the entire world, literally, and literally ch- transformed billions over you know the last 2,000 years, is Jesus Christ and the Bible. Yeah. It's the most sold book. Everyone knows, even if you hate God and you're an atheist or you're Buddhist or you're Muslim or you're anything other than Christian, you know, you call yourself a believer of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. Other than even anything other than that, you know about the Bible. You know there's an Old Testament. You know there's a New Testament. And somewhere in there, your heart is heard about it. Your your mind knows about it. So it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. So the message is real. It's it's a it's a good thing. It's a good thing. I was gonna talk more about covenants, but this is fun. You know, the uh, I was going to talk yeah. about because you know my idea was that what is a covenant to you, um, right? And because um, we don't talk about covenant at all. I mean, uh, we you know we in the United States we don't under nobody. I haven't heard that word outside of my my circle of friends or, or the ministers I listen to, the, the preachers I know and, and listen to, or or I bring it up. You know, it's it's phenomenal it's it's almost like a it's like, it's almost like a language or culture sh- uh, block trying to change the idea of what what it is to become a believer in Jesus because if man if, if you really think about it it all boils down to the god had to make another covenant so that we could join and if it wasn't for that we wouldn't be in we wouldn't be in the family there would be no exchange there would be no benefits. There would be no curse, you know, as part of a covenant. And so it's really, uh, we can get that, uh, that we can talk about that more in another, another time. That'd be fun. But the idea of a covenant really sold me on the gospel. It, sh- it, it revealed to me why, who God is, what he is, who Jesus is, and the reasoning behind it all. Because what do we say? Hey, if you want to, you know, have you, if, if, has God touched you? You know, you know, want to lift your hand and ask Jesus into your life? I mean, that sounds good, but I know what that means. But 99.9% of the people who raise their hands don't know what that means. And so yeah. it's all covenant behind it. Your thoughts? Well, I would say that when we say covenant, we always have to talk about it in the terms of how the Old Testament and the New Testament describes it as a covenant relationship of marriage. That's what Paul yeah. says in Ephesians chapter five is like, hey, this is the closest way I can describe what this relationship with Christ looks like. And it's through the, the relationship of a man to a wife. 
And the most described attribute, a uh, guy, a Catholic scholar actually named Brant P. Petrer, uh, wrote a book, Jesus the Bridegroom. And he talks about basically how the most common theme and relationship, how God refers to us as a husband does to a wife. And yes, true. if you look at the covenants, they're basically marriage contracts. Right. Basically. Like if you look at Sinai, that's a marriage that's a wedding ceremony between God and his people. Oh, 100%. And so, yeah. and so p- picture this, which is crazy. And when you think about it, this is something uh, I'm actually going to have him on my podcast. A guy named Joshua Ryan Butler pointed out, and it was so moving and shocking. He's like, when you are in this – when you make a covenant relationship, w- when God made a covenant relationship with Israel, literally at the wedding altar, Israel immediately goes and makes another idol – the golden calf so in essence <laughs> yeah israel commits adultery at the wedding altar at the honeymoon almost right and and god says i'm still gonna be faithful to you praise god that's right i'm still gonna be faithful to you even when you're faithless thank god um and and it goes to show that no matter what uh, i look at like genesis 15 which is probably one of the most important uh, passages of like covenants you look at where a- yeah. abraham yeah walks through the torn pieces with God or mm-hmm. God walks through the torn pieces. So God asked Abraham, Hey, take all these animals and slaughter them, cut them into pieces, and make an aisle away. Mm-hmm. And Abraham understood what he was doing. He's, he was making a covenant. Right. Usually how it work is a King or the servant and the King, or just the servant would walk through the torn pieces. And they would say, as they're walking through the, pe- the pieces, they're saying, if I don't do everything I'm going to do, if I said that I'm going to do in this covenant, may I be cut to pieces? Right. May I be like these animals? May I die? May I be cursed like these animals? And what's crazy about the story is God comes down as the flaming pot or the torch. It's hard to translate in the Hebrew what that means exactly, but God comes down and he walks through the pieces alone. And basically what God's saying is, Abram, Abraham, if you don't do all that you said you're going to do, May I be torn to pieces? May I be cursed? May I die? And if I don't do everything I say I'm going to do, may I be torn to pieces? May I be cursed? May I die? Abraham and his descendants are not going to fulfill the covenant right? because we're not perfect because of sin. And so the, iron, the, the, the beauty of that is, is centuries later, God comes down and he literally was torn to pieces. He literally was cursed. He literally did die. Um, and that was to fulfill yeah. the promise God made to Abraham back in Genesis 15. It was about the covenant. And the beauty of the covenant is this, is that even though we are faithless, God is faithful. As, as I think it's First or Second Timothy that talks about that. So it's, it's what we have to hang our hat on. So it's good. The, it's the immutability of God's promise, meaning that God's, mm-hmm. God's love doesn't fluctuate. You know, you don't have to butter him up like dad to get <laughs> the things, God. Uh, he's he's present. He's he's not looking at your moral failings. He's looking at do you do you believe that? Do you put your trust in me? Where's your loyalty lie? Are you professing loyalty in me or something else? Man, and that's, that's good. That's God cares about more about what you believe and where your loyalties lie than what you actually do. You could do all these great things. And you could still don't know God because you're what you're doing may be good things, but the motivations are rooted in I'm not gonna get I'm gonna get the things of God, but no, I'm not I'm not interested in getting God himself. In other words, I want God's blessing, but not God himself. And you don't really want the covenant relationship, which that's not how it works. 
because at the end, if you do, if you think of it that way, you're using God. Oh, dude. Dude. And, bar- and basically compelling him to bless you, which well, makes you God, and he's, well, the story, he's not really sovereign. Bro, the story, the perfect example is given to us, Second Kings, Nahum. He, yeah. Where he, you know, he says, what it basically is this, is Nahum comes over, he's pagan, he's he's a Gentile, and he's like, I want to know this God. Who is, who, is this, who is this Yahweh? Right? And so he he believes him he accepts him he becomes a jew essentially and he goes back but he says first to elijah the prophet what is god gonna not like me though even though i have to go back to my job which is pagan worship at the altar altar yeah and and he and he basically elijah's like you know or here's some dirt from israel take it with you and he gives him the nod and he's like you know god knows your heart he knows what you you love he knows he knows your actions aren't necessarily what's qualifying you. It's that your intentions in your heart is the main thing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's almost kind of comical when Naaman's like, hey, I'm going to take this dirt with me. And because, like, I can't – they thought the gods and gods were geographically located mm-hmm. and they couldn't leave the boundaries of the geography. And Naaman's like, hey, I'm going to take all this dirt from Israel so God will go with me and I'm going to – put the dirt when i go to the temple of rimon and when i bow at the king i'm gonna kneel on this dirt so everyone knows who who i really serve and he and he asks elijah is that okay like yeah. does god know my heart yeah. and, and elijah doesn't sit there and correct him in his theology like no that's not right theology god's everywhere you don't have to do that he says shalom right. <laughs> like go in peace yeah, yeah. like shalom i always see elijah say it in a dismissive way like yeah it's fine mm-hmm. Because exactly. Elijah knew his heart was in the right place. Uh, that's why he got especially mad in uh, the later part of that story at Gehazi, who's trying to exploit Naaman. Mm-hmm. He's like, dude, we cannot take his money because it, it's distorting the picture of the gospel. The gospel cannot be bought. It's not It's not to be sold. You can't work for it. And you're distorting that picture for Naaman, who's, who's got it. He's essentially got it. Yeah, yeah. This, the Syrian and the story would have been, I mean, the story Jews hated because Jesus quotes it in Luke chapter four. And he's like, Hey, there were a lot of lepers in Israel, but God only healed one. And it was a Syrian named right. name it. <laughs> and, uh, they did not like that at all. In fact, they tried to, you know, throw him off the cliff. And well, it, it's said Jesus went ninja <laughs> and disappeared in the crowd. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's the perfect picture of, of righteousness by faith. And that's a, that yep. is anti-Jewish culture. Right. When it comes to uh, the Pharisees and the um, the Talmud and so on and so forth. Right. It's, the Jews are a slave in the mind. They're a slave to righteous acts or making yourself righteous through acts. And and, and that's not it at all. And nowhere ever is, is it in the Bible that God says, if you don't do X, you're going to hell. It's always yeah. been faith makes you righteous. He did it with Abraham. I mean, he he did it all down the line. In fact, remember Job? It wasn't and Job didn't take a cloth and dip it in something and pray nine times and do X Y Z. It was uh, chapter forty when he got in prayer and faith that God is his savior, God is to his friends and to everything, and, and then it changed the situation. It's faith in him, not you know because I went to church twenty five times this year, I've got something good has to happen to me. 
but that's that's um that's the enemy man all over that's um the nakash right that's the all over um all over the world and all through time trying to get men to do to do things un, in their own power and trying to like uh, do their own little ceremonies to make themselves feel good so they feel like they're doing something good for God but they never really know God and they never believe God and that's something I'm working in my life towards to to uh, reveal that and change that you see my family yeah. and and all the people around me it's funny yeah, you, it's well said man it's funny you said that about Naaman you said uh it's like one of my favorite Old Testament stories too yeah. I love that you brought that story up to, not to mention it's it shows you the deep culture of the Nephilim and how Nephilim how yeah, so? because the traditions of oh, fallen gods yeah. are are so spread in geological er, geographical areas I mean well, think about it you have you have goes, pyramids go ahead yep yeah no it goes back to that idea of the Deuteronomy 32 worldview that the gods Yahweh gives uh basically jurisdiction of these lesser Elohim, these, these the sons of the Most High, mm-hmm. um, these lower angelic beings, and he gives them stewardship over the nations, and their whole job was to minister the nations back into reconciliation with the one true God, but what happens in Psalm 82, of course, yeah, is yeah. they revolt, yep. uh, and they try and destroy God's people, and God casts his judgment on them, and the judgment is they'll die like men, and they become the Shadin or the demonic forces of today uh the the nephilim or the disembodied spirits from the nephilim which yep. were destroyed in the flood yeah become the demonic forces in which wage war against god's kingdom um and they're led by the the nakash or or lucifer or satan or whatever you want to call him the serpent mm-hmm. and so it's it's interesting that yeah i didn't even think of it in terms of the deuteronomy 32 worldview but uh, in any case, well, it's all you do is so scattered throughout the, the word of God that hidden and every little all these stories show up that you're like, oh, my gosh, if you it's look, all, close, it's all interconnected. It's all interconnected. It's all interconnected. I've been trying to get uh, Michael Heiser on my podcast. Yeah, that'd be cool, man. That'd be yeah. that'd be a great one. He's a he's a he's a busy dude, though. Yeah, well, that's a, that's OK. It's, well, uh, you know, I asked. So we'll see what he says. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I got. I got Joshua Ryan Butler, who really well respected theologian. I I digged his books. Have you ever read any of his books, Brian? Uh, you know what? No, you've you've told me dude, about him, but you... dude, you got to pick up the book, The Pursuing God. I think you would dig that book, The Pursuing God. Yeah, his whole premise of the book is we're not the ones pursuing God, but actually God's pursuing us. Sure, sure. And God's not the one running, but we're actually the ones running. <laughs> and the whole premise of the book is when will we stop running? And it really was a paradigm shifter. Uh, he has another great book called uh, God Skeletons in the Closet, where he talks about hell, um, and he talks about uh, uh, the, the the alleged did God command genocide? Did God command the Israelites to kill the Canaanites? And he, it's probably one of the best apologetic books nice. based I, on like what? Old Testament difficulties I've ever read, and I've read a lot of them. <clears throat> I've read, you know. Uh, uh, Walter Bergamon, I've read Gleason Archer, I've read all these guys, and I think he has by far the best book that tackles these issues because he he t- not only does he point out all these different things going on in the story of the Bible, but he ties it always back to the gospel, and he makes it personal, and it almost feels like I'm reading a sermon, and Man, it really cool. like impacts me 
in a very applicable way. Uh, but uh, I'm curious because I'm going to bring up some of the Michael Heiser stuff. I'm curious to what he'll say about some of these things and just just his thoughts because his stuff is – I think it would mesh really well with that idea of well, I mean, unseen realm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean – you know, I, I've often when I before I knew about the unseen realm, essentially not the book, but the actual unseen realm and what goes on. Mm-hmm. I questioned, I questioned the whole idea of why are you, why would God command His people to slaughter baby to old, uh, the oldest elder in the you know to the king? Why would He do that? And not just one group of people. And then is God of the God of death? You know, of course not. You know, is he the God yeah. murderer? Of course not. There's definitely reasons, and that's a great. That would be a great topic to talk about, because yeah, you know, it's it, it. Not only does it does it prove out that God's method, you know, um, is true. Like when you leave the the uh, if you leave, you know, when, when Israel left, is it J, uh, Joshua? He he didn't kill, or who was it? I can't remember at the moment. He didn't leave. He didn't have to kill the king. The king came back and wiped him out. And one of the, um, you know, one of the ites, Amorites or something. Oh, oh, uh, King Agi, the Agagite. Yeah, there you go. That's it. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, I remember that because I was blown away. I, I did a sermon on Esther about pride. And uh, Haman is actually a descendant of the Agagite. So, like, here's a great case for, you know, why would God command that? Well, centuries later, King Agi, you know, escapes judgment and it wasn't until like months later samuel uh, basically decapitates this dude's head well this guy produced offspring and the agagites are still around and then here comes haman and they're in this position where haman is basically going to commit a mass genocide to wipe out all the jews and if they wipe out all the jews that means no messianic line and so you have this case where like, oh, that's terrible. Like, why would why would God do this? And it's like, well, God knew in the future that this guy would lead the complete destruction of Israel, which would have been the end of everybody, Jew and non-Jew alike. And so – but the other, other thing I wanted to point out too is Josh brought this up, and I thought it was a great point. He brought this up when he spoke at our seminary. That's how I met Josh. It's kind of – this idea of destroy everything, wipe out the men, women, and children, the animals, level the city. It's kind of ancient trash talk because you have – there's actually great evidence to show that because you have in one passage like God says, slaughter all the Amorites. And then the very next chapter, the Israelites, after taking the city and God giving this command, are still fighting the Amorites. Hmm. And it's like, well, wait a second. If, if he said destroy literally everybody, then why are they still fighting them? And so this is kind of this exaggerated, like the totality totality of these cities Hmm. need to be leveled. And when we think of cities too, Josh brings this up in his book, is they're much different than what we think. We think of cities as like Seattle or San Antonio Mm -hmm. or New York City and all this stuff. Like just a a large civilian population. Cities back in those days in the Near East were military forces. And they would would have – yeah, and they would have civilians in there, but they would be usually evacuated ahead of time knowing that an enemy army is coming to attack, and they would flee to the hillside or they flee to the villages. So these cities are really like more like areas of which militaries were concentrated. Hmm. Like so Jericho 
like the reason why they have walls is because they had a huge military presence there. Sure. Um, they were they were like castles. So medieval medieval times, castles were used. They weren't places where people would live, but they were cities of refuge, in which people would flee in times of, of trouble, or they were used by the military for strong points. And so, any case, yeah, it's yeah, Adam, it's one of those. It's pretty cool. It's for, it's fun to explore that stuff. Uh, you know, I think, so too. I think as multiple, you know, of course, God is a poet. You know, he does he does things not only in the in the literal, right? I ha this needs to happen because, but also, he can definitely throw you know the poetry or the um, you know an allegory in there of, of the times and and make it all fit as the same meaning. It's he's amazing. He, what he's done in weaving the, the, all the books of the Bible together. And the um, and kept it uh, kept it accurate. You know, they they say what what's the best way to keep something accurate is have you know one copy that's perfect, or have you know a hundred thousand copies that are like ninety nine percent accurate. And, yeah, and that's that's what he's done. Yeah, I think uh, you know I, I remember reading a, uh, a New Testament author. Uh, not an author, but he's a scholar, Bart Ehrman, and he's the guy mm -hmm. who wrote the famous book, Misquoting Jesus, and he's basically saying, hey, the Old T New Testament's been completely corrupted. And his whole r rationale behind that is what he would say would be ideal conditions is if you had the original Gospels, because we don't have the original Gospels, but we have over 5,000 manuscripts right. where we can use textual criticism to recompile with 99.8 yeah. to 99.9 .9 accuracy of what the New Testament says. Exactly. The, the, the stuff we don't know is like things like First John 1 where he says, we share this for your love or for our love, and mm -hmm. we share this for your love. Like utterly trivial. It doesn't hinge on anything theological. Yeah, right? You going to hell if you don't know that scripture? No. Exactly. Yeah, of course not. Like God's not going to sit there with the – the the clipboard and you'd be like oh you didn't do this small <laughs> the, little irrelevant you know, theological exactly. thing and or it's not you, like you're you adding thought... you're adding to the scripture of course you know you if you the the theme of the, the gospels and and it's the love of god you know it's... right 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 but the the thing that i thought was interesting is well actually i would be really skeptical if we had one gospel account the originals because that would actually give someone the ability to take those right. and actually corrupt them exactly. because those would be the only source and actually God not having original documents uh, actually protected it from corruption ironically enough it really it's does not actually it's not actual proof of the original like it's it's historically viable we know it's historically viable through textual criticism like if, let's say we didn't have any manuscripts we could recompile the bible many times over just with how many times the early church fathers quoted the scripture. So even if we didn't have a single manuscript evidence, yep. the early church fathers wrote so much and quoted so much scripture out of the new Testament that we could recompile the whole new Testament, uh, easily, easily with, with high degree probability that it's the original text. And yep. so you, but, but people don't want to hear that because they want to say, oh, it's just been corrupted over time because that's simple and they don't have to think about it. And mm -hmm. it's one of those kind of phrases that they can throw out. And when you pry deeper, people actually really don't know what they mean by that. Or they've never like looked into the specifics of that. When you really look into the specifics of it, you're like, oh, crap. Like this is not yeah, a, a, a historical or a 
document that we can't trust. Like this is absolutely a historical oh, document dude, we trust. One hundred percent. Not to mention it weeds out the people who are trying to corrupt the gospel because now your one copy is different than the eighty eight thousand versions that other people have. And so Correct. who who's right? Not you. It's a beautiful way to uh you know, it's funny how people critique the gospels that way. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the New Testament. Um, and the rest of the books. They they say, Oh, they're corrupted, that man has put their fingers on them, etc., etc. Yet they'll believe all of what Hamlet and, and Shakespeare and all of these different writings from the old the uh, the history they'll believe those yes. are accurate and, and just what the author is supposed to have said and so on yeah it, i mean you know nt wright said that the dating of the gospels being in the time of the eyewitnesses is almost as certain as us knowing that augustus died in 12 or 7 ad yeah like it's that certain and this is this is not just it's not just christian scholars that are saying this it's not just christian new testament writers that are saying this but this is actually like skeptical, like authors, like even guys like Bart Ehrman. Like I remember I was listening to an NPR uh, radio podcast uh, between Bart Ehrman and this other person. And they're like, wow, the New Testament's been corrupted over time. What do you think it originally said? And it was a really good question. But Ehrman's response was amazing. He's like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, like, what do you think it originally said? Like, what do you think it really taught? And he's like, well, we know just by reading it, like you can read, you read the Bible. <laughs> And it's just like, dude, what are you talking about? Exactly. You wrote a whole book about how the the Bible's corrupted, but you're saying that we know what the Christian writers were saying. <laughs> he knows just by it, looking at the Bible. He knows in his heart. It's true. Well, of course he does, because yeah. there's the there's you know, William Lane Craig said this, there's the good Bart Ehrman, there's bad Bart Ehrman. Like <laughs> bad Bart Ehrman writes the popularized books that says the Bible's completely unreliable and corrupted over time, but good Bart Ehrman, the good scholar Ehrman knows better and knows that you can recompile the new testament to 99.8 percent accuracy and you can find out what it originally said with with a re i mean we are so dang close to having a hundred percent of what the gospel said absolutely and the things again that we don't know are utterly trivial this is we share this for your joy yeah. we share this for our joy well, there's, a, there's like a, a couple scriptures here and there right it's not it's ridiculous yeah. So, well, I only got a few more yeah, minutes. Yeah, I got to go eat with my family. Absolutely. But, uh, well, thanks for joining, bro. For dude, it was fun. For, we got to do this again. I got to have you on my podcast. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. I, uh, you know, I love it. We have a, we have a good time. Yeah. 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 We do. And I got to come down once this coronavirus thing is over and hang out with you and the family and and uh, maybe if there's some weightlifting meets. You know, we could do a weightlifting meet, Absolutely. social distancing, of course. Don't get within six feet of me, but don't don't get any ideas. Hopefully, I know what you're thinking. You better not hug me, you son of a gun. You know what though? You definitely can share my bed. <laughs> oh my gosh, you are so inappropriate! I can't believe you said that. <laughs> I love you, and Brandon. On that note, hey, yep. I love you, bro. Have a hey, great day. Thanks, thanks for having for, me on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right. All right. Thanks, buddy. All right, take guys. care. Bye, bye. Thanks for the Thanks for listening. Talk to you guys later. Seasons don't feel the reaper. Don't do the wind, the sun or the